The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We continue in our worship as we look to God's Word together, and if you want to have a thumb in the book of James, chapter 5, but we're going to start in Matthew 7, and if you have your Bible open there, you can follow along as I read. We'll pick up on verse... 18 of Matthew chapter 7. And then we'll go to Matthew, or James chapter 5, the end of the book. By the way, James was a half blood brother of Jesus. James was around a lot when Jesus was doing his teaching, mostly the public teaching. And James didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah during his life, during Jesus' uh, ministry on earth, but James came to believe in Christ after Jesus rose from the dead. And James, in that five chapters of his epistle, James actually alludes to or refers to many of the teachings, sayings of Jesus more than just about any of the epistles that are written, direct uh, allusions or references to the words of Jesus out of the Gospels. And here's a parallel truth that James talks about today that was relevant when Jesus was talking. Relevant for us today. Matthew 7, verse 18. A good tree is comparing people. There's only two kinds of people in the world. There's good people and bad people, saved people, unsaved people. The saints and the ain'ts, as they say. Or sinners and saints. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's the context of Matthew 7. And they can, we, don't, we can't read people's hearts. Only God can do that. But every person lives a life on display with words and actions. And Jesus said, at a minimum, you can observe the pattern of their words and their actions. And many times that will tell you kind of what's going on in the heart. If there's a pattern of behavior, and he says in verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. A true believer cannot continually on an ongoing basis do evil all the time in an unbroken manner. That just shouldn't be the pattern of their life. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree, that's an unsaved person, unregenerate, produce good fruit, real good fruit that is pleasing to God, that is uh, wrought by the Spirit of God starting in the heart. So every person is going to produce fruit, either good fruit or bad fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down or judged by God and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So you'll know people by the pattern of their life, a long-term pattern of their life, the direction of their life. Over time, it will become pretty clear that's what he's saying, verse 21, and then he accentuates it here on Judgment Day. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. These are professing believers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are False believers, but profess to be Christians or believers in Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Jesus is not saying that people get saved by good works. When he says, the one who does the will of my Father, the will of the Father is to obey Jesus, submit to Jesus, give your life to Christ in a true uh, biblical manner. That's the will of God having the right relationship with Jesus Christ. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. 22, many will say to me on that day, that's judgment day at the end of the age. Many, notice many, will say to Jesus the judge on judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I, the Lord Jesus and judge, will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you in the first place. These people who were professing believers were never born again, were never regenerate in the first place. They didn't lose their salvation. That is impossible. A truly born-again Christian who receives eternal life cannot lose their salvation. They were never saved in the first place. Their belief was superficial. It was shallow. It was only on the outside. It wasn't on the inside. And so they had a profession of an allegiance to Christ, the church, the Bible. Their heart was not changed. They will be exposed before King Jesus, who is judged at the end of the age, if they're not exposed during the course of their lifetime. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? I mean, miracles, apparently even doing miracles. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Again, that's intimacy, a personal relationship. I never had a relationship with you. You were never one of mine. You were never uh, regenerate, born again, and adopted into the family of God. Case scenario number one, or the best case scenario or uh, illustration of this would be Judas. Judas had an allegiance to Christ. He professed to believe in Jesus. He followed Jesus for two plus years. He was committed to the cause. He was trained as one of the twelve apostles. Uh, he followed Jesus wherever he went. He had uh, privileged duties among the twelve as the treasurer of their group. Uh, he hid it very well, but he was never regenerate. He never truly believed. He was never born again. He never knew Jesus personally and intimately as a believer. Jesus said that and told him in John, you are unclean. He's always been unclean. He was of the devil. He was never saved. And finally, he was exposed. So there's a perfect example of somebody who had at one time a profession of faith in Jesus, but was never saved in the first place. And then finally, he got exposed in this lifetime by Jesus himself. And Jesus said ultimately to Judas, because we know he did not repent. Um, he just had guilt because he got caught. Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And notice that scary thing in verse 22 where it says, many will say to me in the judgment day. Many. Isn't that sad? That means that throughout the course of history, there's going to be a lot of people who profess to believe in Jesus who, when it comes down to Judgment Day, they aren't true Christians. And they're cast away from Christ. Some, maybe, they might even know that and they're doing a charade that they're well aware of and they're just kind of trying to hide it as best they can. But some of these people are going to be self-deceived. They truly think they're saved and they're not. That's, even, that's what's really scary. People who are self-deceived believing that they're Christians when they're not. So... Uh, with that, let's go back to James chapter 5 and uh, what James concludes his book with relates to this matter that the church for 2,000 years has been full of two kinds of people. I mean, the church for the most part is full of professing believers. But the reality in terms of their status is there's two groups. There are truly regenerate, born-again Christians who belong to God. And then there's another group of professing Christians who aren't truly saved. And some of these people are self-deceived. They think they're saved, but they're not. And they will be rejected by Christ if they don't truly repent. And so the church, every church has those two kinds of people in it. Every church without exception. Jesus told his disciples that in the Gospels as he was preparing to start the church and said that the church, God's people, God's community will be filled always with two kinds of people. The wheat, that's, those were the believers, and the weeds, 
And there are certain weeds that when they sprout up, and they're really little, they look just like wheat when it first sprouts up. And from the human eye, you can't tell the difference. And it's only with time as they grow, and especially with the fruit that they produce, finally can you identify, oh, we have a counterfeit in our midst. And Jesus told his disciples, you have no, don't try to pull out uh, the weeds among the wheat. Because when you're trying to go around as the fruit inspector, the divine fruit inspector, and trying to judge everybody's heart and weed out unbelievers, uh, you're going to do damage and you're going to actually pull out wheat while you're doing it. So Jesus basically was telling his disciples, leave judgment of hearts to God and you have other responsibilities. And part of that responsibility is managing the church, observing outward fruits of words and actions over the course of time when it establishes a pattern of behavior. And then he gave the church, uh, Matthew 18, the discipline process that we use to manage problems and sin in the church. And inevitably in the church, uh, even when you're a Christian and you're a, you're a wheat, you're a, a true believer, you're a sheep, you're one of God's, when you got saved, your sin was not eradicated. My sin nature was not eradicated. And so even though I got saved and became a Christian and I'm forgiven of my sin because of Christ's perfect life, His substitutionary death on my behalf, His resurrection, and I put faith in Him, believing that He got punished instead of me as my substitute. Now He's my Lord and Savior and I'm saved by grace through faith in the work of Christ. Now I'm a born-again Christian. All of my sins are forgiven legally. I am still a sinner. You are still a sinner as a Christian. You still battle with sin. That's Romans 7 from Paul. And you will battle with sin all of your life. There is a civil war inside your soul in my soul. And every once in a while, as a, even as a Christian, that sin is going to pop up or crop up either in your home, your personal life, or even in the church. And so when you've got two sinners living together at home or in the church, or in the church when you've got 200 sinners living together, what do you have? Houston, we have a problem. We will have continual ongoing problems of sinners rubbing shoulders with each other. And so that's what James is addressing. He's going to close this thing, and he's been addressing problems for five chapters. That's why he wrote this letter. Boy, man, we got some bad reports of things going on. They need some direction. They need some pastoral uh, urgings and exhortations of what God expects and what God uh, wants them to refrain from in terms of godly behavior. James was fully aware of the idea uh, that in these churches there were probably false believers, professing believers, but weren't really Christian. That was the whole point of James chapter 2 when he was calling everybody to do some self-examination. And if you are a professing believer, then you should have works that are consistent with your profession of faith. Faith without works is dead. And if you've got a life characterized by no good works, then it's, you're probably not born again. That was the whole point. Actually, that's been a theme all throughout the book of James. And most commentators legitimately say that the book of James is a book about tests, to test your faith, to examine yourself to see whether you or me, whether we are in the faith, which Paul calls us to do in Corinthians. He calls every Christian, examine yourself to see whether you are truly in the faith. And James lays out all these tests. That's why he had 60 imperatives. Test your Christian life in light of these 60 imperatives, these commands of what God expects you to do, wants you to do, and wants you to refrain from doing. As a Christian. And people react two different ways to all these commands from God, hitting us between the eyes continually in the book of James. Sensitive, I believe, spirit-filled Christians, when they hear all these commands, will feel a sense of guilt. I know I did. I read this. 
Well, oh, you got me there. Ouch. Oh, you got me there. Oh, the, this is the epistle of pain, by the way. Um, and that's how a Christian should respond with a sensitive conscience, uh, realizing, wow, I'm a sinner still and I need God's grace. And man, I'm getting hammered and I don't do that and I do that. And you're, uh, you are conflicted in your soul the way Paul was in Romans 7. Or you could respond uh, as a professing Christian to all these commands saying, and, and just kind of stiffen your lip and go like this. And, uh, you know, I'm tired of these commands. I don't like being told what to do. I've heard professing Christians say that in response to Scripture. I don't like to be told what to do. Wow. That, that's a problem. Because that's why James wrote his epistle. To challenge all of us to show us God's expectations. And so he's got one more imperative here at the end. But it's actually more on a, an encouraging note because there are some times where James got really fiery. Uh, but now he goes into pastoral encouragement mode and that's uh, legitimately so at the end of his epistles. He wraps it up. So let's look at verses 19 and 20 in his pastoral summary to this very challenging epistle. He says, my brethren, and that's a phrase he used about 12 times throughout, reminding them that, yeah, you know, I'm confronting you with some sin issues, but at the same time, you know, take it for granted that most of you are believers. You truly know Jesus Christ. You need to be encouraged. You need to be challenged. But you're believers. You're secure in Christ. You sin, but you're in the palm of Christ's hand and nobody can snatch you from Christ if you've truly been saved. And you, yes, you're in a battle with sin, but you're my brethren. You're brothers in the Lord and we're all in this together. James struggled with these very issues. So this is a way he identifies uh, with fellow sinners. My brethren, it's very encouraging and pastoral. Uh, my brethren, and by the way, the last thing he just got finished talking about was the power of prayer and uh, encouraging the elders of the church to minister to those who are sick in unique ways in the church. And some of these people are sick because of sin in their life that they're hiding or they're living a compromised life. And some of them just need to confess their sin that will bring about some of that healing, both spiritual and physical. And so it was a special, unique ministry uh, that he just talked about with the elders. And now it's a general and generic ministry that applies to every believer that he's going to close with in verse 19 and 20. So let me read that. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 19 and 20. So this is very encouraging. It's, it's encouraging and at the same time it's challenging. Uh, I titled this Rescuing Fellow Sinners. That's what we need to be in the business of doing. We need to be in the business as believers. This is not just the job of the, the elder or the pastor. This is the responsibility of every Christian. Looking around us, being conscious of who's around us, what's going on, uh, watching people, how they're living their life, and we need to be in the business of rescuing each other from wayward, sinful patterns of behavior, and I just I came up with three points here to help us think it through. Uh, if you're a Christian, you're part of a local fellowship. Maybe you're a member of this church, regular attender of this church. Uh, this command is for you. You need to be in the business of rescuing your fellow believers around you in the event that they stray. And I need to be doing the same thing. Every Christian, the onus is on all of us. And so let's go ahead and look at point number one, and that's just simply that weak sinners are prone to roam. Weak sinners are prone to roam. He just says it matter-of-factly in verse uh, 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, he uses that word strays two times. He uses it in verse 19. Strays. Some translations say wander. That's a good word. Kind of slowly wandering away from the truth. This is straying from the truth. And he uses 
uh, the same word in verse 20 when he says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error or he turns him from his wandering or he turns him from his straying. It's the same word. One's a verb, one's a noun. It's the same word. Um, so in the, point number one, weak sinners are prone to roam. Uh, I just actually I just came up with four questions that I want to answer that will kind of unpack the meaning of this verse and this reality that weak sinners are prone to roam. By roam, I mean stray from the truth, stray from the faith. We'll talk more about that. Uh, first, but I've got four questions that will answer this. Question number one on point number one is who? Because we're talking about somebody straying from the truth. Who? Well, he says specifically, uh, any among you. This is a phrase James uses consistently throughout this epistle. Among you. Those in your midst. If someone in particular in your midst, somebody in the body of Christ, someone in the church, this is definitely a professing believer. This is not talking about someone who is an unbeliever, unregenerate, and unaffiliated with the church. This is somebody in the church and a professing believer in your midst. One of you. That's the who. A professing believer. Well, are they saved or not saved? Well, after reading about 25 commentaries on James, and 12 and a half said it was a Christian straying, and then 12 and a half said uh, probably an unbeliever who wasn't saved, I gave up and said, uh, we don't know. Because these guys are really smart and they can't agree, so they don't know either. Um, but that's not even the point. We're not supposed to figure out if they're truly born-again Christians who are straying from truth and in sin, or if they're just a professing Christian and they're really not saved and they're straying with the lifestyle of sin, I think the, the pattern that is seen could be true of an unbeliever or uh, who professes to be a Christian or a true believer because every one of us battles, struggles with sin. They are definitely a professing believer whether truly regenerate or not. So that's who the candidate is here. And point number one, weak sinners are prone to wrong. Do you know that you can put your name in there? Remove the word weak and put your first name in there. I could do the same. Pastor Cliff is prone to Rome. Pastor Cliff is prone to sin. Pastor Cliff is prone to roam and wander away from the church. How do I know that? Because of that great hymn that we sing. Prone to wander, right? Lord, I know no, that's not why, but it's in the Bible and I know in my own heart. We, we battle with sin continually. So when I say weak sinner, who's the weak sinner? That's not just an immature Christian. That's any Christian who at any given moment is vulnerable to sin and temptation and being drawn away. And if you, if you don't think it can happen to you, Paul says, take heed lest you fall. The most vulnerable person of all is the person that says, oh, that won't happen to me. So uh, you need to personalize it. Weak sinners are prone to roam. Uh, whether you're a professing Christian, not truly saved, or whether you truly are a believer, uh, sin is very dangerous, very deceptive. So that's the who. Well, when? When does this happen? When do Christians or professing Christians roam and stray away from truth into patterns of sinful behavior? Well, he uses uh, the conditional statement there, if. If. And he uses a case uh, with the verb saying this is, probably, this is likely going to happen. This is just a basic reality in church life. In other words, you can pretty much count on this happening. Okay, you're a church plan of only two years and nobody's done this yet. Okay, give it six years. It's going to happen. Give it ten years, give it twenty years, and it's going to happen more and more. Time, time will reveal and show this happening. So 
That's when is this going to happen? Maybe it's already happened in your life at some point. I, I know in my own wedding, when I got married 24 years ago, somebody in my wedding party who was a professing believer at the time and a very close friend, and today I can't even hunt them down or find them because they rejected the faith years ago and got tired of me pursuing them. Wandered away. I don't know if they're lost and were never saved in the first place or are just being disobedient Christians. I don't know. But it was really sad because it was somebody very close to me. So it is inevitable. This is going to happen in the body of Christ. So you got the who. Uh, any one of us at any given moment. When. Uh, it's going to happen. At least to some people. What. What exactly happens. What is James talking about when he says, if any brother among you strays from the truth. The verb stray in the New American Standard, translated as wander in some translations. I think the King James says err, E-R-R, uh, is, comes from the verb plan, plano, planeo, where we get the word planet. And what do planets do? Planets are always on the move. They're moving targets. Ooh, and that's what this sinner is. They, they are a moving target and straying away and wandering away. They can't stay still. Wandering away from the truth. Wandering away from the Christian lifestyle. Wandering away from what they know is right. Wandering away from the accountability of the local fellowship. And that's why Hebrews 10 uh, pointed out that there are some Christians, professing Christians, who have gotten into the habit of abandoning and ditching church on a regular basis. They have wandered away. That is a sign of someone wandering away from the truth. And that's what this verb means. Planeo. Planet. Wandering. Straying. And by the way, it's subtle. It is little. It's not dramatic and drastic. And boom, you can identify it. Oh, you know, they were good this week and uh, horrible the next week. Usually it is gradual. It is subtle. It is little by little. There are things that incrementally led up to their apostasy or their leaving the fold or leaving the truth. And many times we don't see those little signs and indications that build up along the way. But at one point they take a toll and we look around and realize, wow, we had a hundred sheep and now we've only got 99 and we're missing one. Where is he? Where is she? Or maybe we know where they are and they're somewhere they shouldn't be. It didn't happen overnight. It's usually gradual. And that's implied in the very word for wandering, straying. And that word for wander and stray is used in the New Testament for believers and unbelievers. Straying away from the truth of God. So uh, that's what's going on here. Straying away from the truth. Well, what is the truth that they're straying away from in the middle of verse 19? The truth is biblical truth. Specifically, the gospel. But also just other basic biblical truth. Commands from God to the believer in the church. They've deviated They've wandered away. They've distanced themselves from God's truth given in Scripture His Word. And they uh, don't want anything to do with it. They're purposely avoiding it. They're purposely isolating themselves from it because they probably don't want to be convicted by it. So the book of Proverbs talks about these kind of people. They typically isolate themselves from the believing community because the believing community will bring accountability, sensitize their conscience. They'll feel guilt. They don't want that. So they usually isolate themselves. Um, so this is what's going on here, by the way. And this is not talking about just an isolated incident of sin. Uh, you know, you, you lost your temper and you said something mean to your spouse and, oh, you sinned and you're straying. No, no that's just needs to be addressed and rebuked and confessed and forgiven and you do maintenance in your relationship. That is not what this is talking about. This straying is a, it has become a pattern of behavior. That's what's going on here. 
It is it has become too long term that this is representative of a healthy Christian. This is either an unbeliever you're dealing with or a true believer who's got big problems and they need help and accountability in their life. Uh, and this, so this is characteristic. Uh, this is a, a pattern of behavior, a lifestyle. That's why it says in verse 20, a sinner. Let him know the one who turns a sinner. This person is now characterized as a sinner. That word sinner is exclusively used in the New Testament for somebody who is typically not a believer. So this, this person is now acting like an unbeliever. That is the characteristic pattern of their life right now. They have been exposed. Now we've got to address the sin. We've got to go on a rescue mission. So that is the what. The who is could happen to any one of us. When it's going to be inevitable in the church. What straying literally, little subtle, little by little, uh, away straying from the truth, uh, the truth of the Bible. Uh, and that leads me to the last question after who, when, what is why. Why does this happen? Why do professing believers or even true believers at times wander away from the faith, whether it's denying what they once believed, like a Bob Dylan. You ever heard of Bob Dylan? The greatest rock and roll songwriter in the history of the universe. What do you mean you don't know who Bob Dylan is? Anyway, that's what I was told. All these hippies. But So Bob Dylan is a famous musician, and in the 1960s, late 1960s, early 70s, he became born again. It's a big deal. And he was a Christian, uh, supposedly. He even wrote songs about it and wrote a book about it. And uh, I remember people telling me, yeah, Bob Dylan, he's a Christian. Really? And then like three decades goes by, and then I see an interview by Bob Dylan, which was very recent. He wants nothing to do. He categorically said he's not a Christian. He said, I'm a Buddhist. Oh, wow, what happened, Bob Dylan? Because he believed, he professed to believe in the true gospel three, four decades ago. He, there's an example of somebody wandering from the truth, from the truth of the gospel. Uh, so it does happen. Uh, and how does this happen? Well, uh, James tells us that it's somebody who strays from the truth. So the Word of God is key. God's revealed revelation is key. That is the foundation for all of this. Uh, staying tied to the Word of God, staying tied to Scripture, or any place in any venue or environment that is teaching the Word of God as an authority uh, in our lives and, and food for our soul. And when you start straying away from the truth of the Word of God, then that's when you become susceptible and vulnerable. They're straying from the truth. And by the way, by the time they've gotten to this scenario where they're, they're just over in a corner doing sinful things, whether they're a believer or not, by that time, they have justified usually their sinful behavior. Either with, if they're still a professing Christian, oh, God will forgive me. Jesus died. He forgave for all, all my sins. Or they might even change their theology and come up with a theology that justifies their sinful behavior. And people... Professing Christians do that all the time. They change their theology to accommodate their compromised lifestyle. So there's always a compromised theology with a compromised lifestyle. They go hand in hand. We see this happen all the time. It is sad. Some of my favorite Christian music artists, I can think of three of them that I used to listen to all the time, had their CDs, loved their music, they blessed my soul. Three of them who were Christians and, I mean, professed, Christians seem to be spirit-filled, writing amazing songs, powerful lyrics, singing with passion. And three of them today uh, have nothing to do with biblical Christianity as we know it. Totally abandoned the faith. Very sad, but it's a reality. 
Um, so that is the how. It's straying from the Word of God. So, you know, this was a, a big challenge to me and for us as a body of Christ. How are we doing in the Word of God? How are you doing in your scripture reading? How are you doing in your devotional life? Do you have your nose in the Word of God on a daily basis or a weekly basis? Because you need to if you're a Christian. The more days you let go by, the more time you let go by where you are not in God's Word, meditating on His Word, thinking about His Word, studying His Word, the more and more vulnerable you become to Satan's deceptions and Satan's attacks. Same with me. We can't go days and days, weeks and weeks without the intake of God's Word. Uh, that is how God has chosen in His wisdom to feed our soul and to protect us and to nourish us and to strengthen us. So a believer, a healthy believer, has got to have a regular intake of the Word of God. And with that, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, which is just the next book over. Flip it over one page. Just a great reminder. Uh, Peter says to fellow believers, chapter 2, verse 1, talking about our amazing salvation that God has given to us. We've been born again through the living Word of God, verse 23. That's how you were born again. It was through God's Word that you were saved. And now you're going to be preserved. And you're going to continue to grow by that same uh, reality, the truth of the Word of God. The Word of God saved you. The Word of God will feed you. The Word of God will help you grow. The Word of God will preserve you. The Word of God will protect you. And he's talking about Scripture. Verse 2, Therefore, because of the power of the Word of God, because we are dependent upon it for all things, therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit, sinful behavior, putting aside hypocrisy, envy, and slander. You Christians, verse 2, like newborn babes. We have some newborn babes in this church. What do they want? Milk! Food! Feed me! And that's what he says. Like newborn babes, long, desire, crave, thirst, hunger in your soul for what? The pure milk of the Word of God. Man, that's a great way to check yourself and evaluate. What is my appetite for the truth of the Bible and the Word of God right now in my life? Well, I'm, actually, I'm, I'm kind of dull. Mm, I can live with it or without it. That's a huge problem. A healthy, growing, protected, secure, mature Christian has this voracious, unsatisfying desire for the intake of God's truth in His Word. And we all get cold, don't we? We do. We, all get, we have our times. And that's when you've got to you know, pray to the Spirit of God, God, I need to get back to Your Word. Create in me a hunger for Your Word and Your truth and have people around you to hold you accountable for that. So this is a command for every Christian, like newborn babes. Long for the, what do you long for most in your life? Entertainment? Money, materialism, your favorite movie, video games, popularity, fill in the blank. There's another good test we can apply to our life. What do you long for and crave most in your life right now? Prestige, success. Well, for the Christian who's healthy and spirit-filled, it should be the desire for the pure milk of the Word of God. That's what really satisfies. That's what causes us to grow? So that by it, the intake of the Word of God, you may grow in respect to your salvation. You are not going to grow mature uh, and be sanctified without the regular intake of the Word of God in your life. It is the milk of the Christian life. It is the meat of the Christian life. We have got to be continually in the Word of God. And this will also be a protective measure or preventative. It will prevent us from falling prey to deception and wandering. Uh, go to Psalm 119. It's kind of like in the middle of your Bible. 
Psalm 119. It is the longest psalm. It's an amazing psalm. 176 verses in almost every single verse is an explicit reference to Scripture and how awesome it is. And the psalmist just is telling God, God, I want to be in Your Word. I want to be blessed by Your Word. I want to know Your Word. It is my salvation. It is my light. It is my everything. So the psalmist is consumed and knows the reality of continually being in the Word of God. That is the key to everything in the Christian life. The Scriptures and being in the Scriptures informs everything else in our Christian life. So there's no growth apart from the intake of the Word of God. And so as a preventative measure, here's just two verses to be reminded of. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young, how can a high school student, how can a high school boy keep his way pure in a preventative way from struggling with lust and everything else that's out in the world and in his own heart? Or a college student? Or a single man? Well, the answer is right here. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. See, the word of God. It's key. Then he follows up on that. Okay, if that's the case, then verse 11. God, your word I have treasured in my heart. Your word I have taken into my heart. I've meditated on it. I have memorized it. I've tried to apply it to my life. I cling to the truth of the Bible, Scripture, the word of God, hiding it in my heart. Why are you doing that? In order that I might not sin against you. So taking in the Word of God, being in it, is preventative in terms of preserving our purity and also keeping us on guard and keeping us from deception that can cause us to wander and end up like this wanderer in point number one of James chapter 5. The Word of God. So what a great challenge. So be in the Word today. Be in the Word of God this week. Look back. How did you do last week? Were you in the Word of God at any time? The last. How did you do the last two weeks? How did you do the last month? There's a big void There's cause for concern. That's the bad news. The good news is we know the solution. Just get your nose back in the Word. Any possible way that you can take in the Bible, in your car, on CD, reading it, memorizing it, uh, writing it down, keeping little notes in your pocket, sharing the Word of God with people, listening to sermons online. I mean, on and on it goes. There's so many ways we can do that. So going back to point number one, weak sinners, we're all weak at times. Uh, We are prone to Rome. Let's go on to point number two. And that is that all believers are to be ready to rescue. They're ready to rescue fellow professing believers. That's what he says. My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth, and, and one turns him back. So another brother turns him back. Uh, this word turns back is used uh, many times in the New Testament for conversion. Or just you're going the wrong way and you're making a turn. You're turning around. You're going that way towards sin, towards self, towards compromise. Turn back is just literally a picturesque word. Turning around, going back to truth where you belong. And we need to help each other, don't we? To turn back to the truth when we get in that kind of a situation. Verse 20 says, let him know. Let the one know who's actually rescuing a fellow believer. You need to know this. And it's individualized. It's personal. Every single one of us might have this opportunity or responsibility to turn somebody else back to the truth after they have strayed and wandered. If you know, uh, let him know that if he turns a sinner from his error, uh, there are going to be great blessings as a result. But on point number two, all believers, every single one of us, needs to be ready to rescue. And he's saying this because he just talked about a special ministry of the elders. If somebody's sick, the elders need to come and pray. There is a special and unique ministry of the elders. But this ministry is the responsibility of every Christian. We need to be helping each other, rescuing each other. Boy, if there's somebody drowning in the pool 
and you know how to swim and you're the closest person there. Oh, the lifeguard, he's in the restroom. Let's wait till he gets back. Uh, I hope you survive. I hope you can last three minutes. No, you dive in and save, right? Even if you're not a lifeguard, and that's uh, the call here. Every Christian needs to be ready and on the alert. This means you need to know the fellow saints. I mean, does it ever happen where you think, okay, three weeks has gone by at church and I haven't seen so-and-so? And then you follow up on that and inquire. You send them an email, a phone call. You go knock on their door. How are you doing? Noticed you were gone for three weeks. You okay? Oh, yeah, I was on vacation. Thanks for asking. Thanks for noticing. So uh, believers need to be concerned for one another. They need to be aware. They need to be discerning. They need to be proactive. They need to be following up on other believers. We are all one family. We need to care about each other. In the words of Paul in Philippians 2, we need to love each other the same. That means love every believer with the same kind of love Follow up on it. Act on it. Well, the elders and the, the deacons do this very actively every week. We, we have an attendance sheet. And we, we look for patterns of behavior. Okay, this person's been missing seven times in nine weeks. Houston, that is not good. That's a problem. There's something going on. We need to follow up. So there are, there are signs that every single one of us uh, needs to be aware of, looking for, being proactive. And we need to go with the mission of turning this person back to the truth. So... Uh, the idea is rescue. It's not uh, so much sticking your finger in their face, giving them a lecture, because you've been there, I've been there. We were all lost at one time. So we're on a rescue mission. Do you need mouth-to-mouth resuscitation? Do you need food? Do you need what? What needed? Do, do you need a blanket? That's part of the rescue mission. It's a heart of compassion and concern. At times it does mean confrontation, though. So you've got to have courage, especially if this is somebody who's a close friend of yours and they're in a compromised lifestyle and you're the closest person to them, you do need to have supernatural divine courage and confront them with their sin. Jesus said that in Luke 17.3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's what Jesus said we all need to do. Or if your sister sins, rebuke her. That's a verbal, face-to-face, one-on-one, detailed, specific admonition of how they are violating Scripture, compromising the profession they've made in Christ. So that's kind of scary, or it can be. We need God's help to do that. Every single one of us has a, a ministry of confrontation. Well, I don't like confrontation. Well, I, I don't know anybody that does, except for the Pharisees. That's not my spiritual gift. Well, there's no such thing as a spiritual gift uh, as confrontation. There's the gift of exhortation, which is similar, but there is the command of the one another's given to every Christian, confront one another. It has nothing to do with whether we like to do it or not. That sounds pretty pious and religious, though. I don't like confrontation. That's actually a weak excuse. Uh, when it's appropriate, we need to do it in obedience to God for the good of that sinner. God could use you as a vessel of rescue. It's awesome. So we need to be obedient. Uh, and as we go to that sinner, that wayward sinner, we need to prepare our hearts, um, you know, asking God. Look at Galatians 6 real quick of how James warns us. Anytime you go to confront a sinner who has a pattern of behavior, who's isolated themselves and they have wandered away, you've got to be careful and wise and prayerful in how you approach that person. Because they could be like the, the rabid, angry dog who's in a corner, the big German shepherd who's growling, and if you go up and you want to help him and you stick your hand out, he could bite your hand off. If you don't have the right approach, that could happen to the wayward sinner as well. And so here's some great advice from the Apostle Paul in Galatians of how to prepare your heart when you know somebody needs to be rescued, a a professing believer. And so I love this passage, Galatians 6. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, okay, their sin has been exposed. They are are wandering from the faith. 
And we need to go get them. If anyone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual. That just means you're, you're walking with the Spirit of God. You are a healthy Christian right now today. You're sensitive to the things of God. You have the right frame of mind. You don't have compromised hidden sin in your life. That's all. It's not your super Christian. Go get Mr. Spiritual Christian to the right. No. This is just you who are spiritual. You're in the right frame of mind. You're prayed up. You've gotten counsel. You want to operate in the Spirit of God. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. See, restore the professing believer who is in sin. The word for restore, the, the verb, is specifically used for two things. A, bro- a bone that was broken and then was put back in place and it healed. It was restored. And now it's totally functional again. Or a broken, torn fishing net that was ripped and then they took the net and sewed it back together and it is fully functional again. That is the goal. To rescue the sinner so that they are fully functional in God's family Again, you who are spiritual, restore such a one notice your attitude in a spirit of gentleness. Not looking down your nose in condescension, calling them a spiritual compromiser. It's a spirit of gentleness that usually comes through being led by prayer and godly counsel and the Spirit of God is leading you. Get this, also taking note of yourself, each one looking to yourself while you're dealing with the sinner so that you too might not be tempted and be pulled into the sin, whether it's the sin of gossip, uh, immorality, or whatever, you could get pulled in to a compromising sin. And that happens subtly. It happens all the time. You've got a, a discontent professing believer over in the corner who has abandoned the church and you go try to rescue them and you find out uh, they got the sin of the gift of Gavin, the sin of gossip. And all of a sudden they're telling you a story and you're believing it. They're talking about fellow members in your church and you're being swayed. That's what this is talking about. Your mind is being poisoned. So he says, boy, you better be careful. Look to yourself. Be on guard. Don't be pulled into it. You're on a rescue mission. Stay focused. Pull them out of the water. Get them breathing again so we can restore them to health. So that's, that's very helpful. And we uh, all need to follow that model. And then we need to uh, actually keep in mind Matthew 18, uh, verse 15, the discipline process as well. I've seen this happen many times. We're a Christian uh, gets offended by another professing Christian who sins against them. And then the Christian who got sinned against automatically concludes and says, oh, that person's not even a believer, probably not a believer. It's like, wow, how did you jump to that conclusion so quickly? Well, because they're just mad. Certainly a true Christian wouldn't act like that. And they just automatically assume, well, that person over there, I don't care what they say about the profession, they're probably not a Christian because they did this or they behaved this way. Well, that's why Jesus gave us Matthew 18, the four steps of the discipline process, 15 through 17. Because Jesus says you can't just, when somebody sins against you or commits a sin or is in sin, you can't just automatically assume that they're not a Christian if they're a professing believer. You need to assume just the opposite. You need to assume that they truly are a Christian and they're just living in sin right now. Then you need to go through Matthew 18, steps 1 through 4, in the right order And then if you get to step four and they're still unrepentant, then and only then do you conclude they're probably not a Christian. But you can't just jump there without going through steps one through three. Because then you're circumventing God's process of confrontation and restoration of a believer. Back to full, healthy use before God. So Matthew 18, 15 through 18, you've got to go through those steps. Step number one, confront in private. Step number two, they didn't listen. Take one or two with you, and now you've got a party of three. 
Three believers confronting them of their sin. They didn't listen to you. You go back and then you tell it to the church. And then the church comes and confronts them. If they don't listen to the church, then and only then do you consider them a tax gatherer, which means they're, I don't care if they profess to be a believer, they're not acting like a Christian, so we will treat them as an unbeliever from this day forward until they fully repent. Uh, so that is our mandate, and it is a huge one and very practical and very needy, that all believers need to be ready to rescue an erring, professing believer, which takes us to point number three from James, and that is rescuing a sinner is cause to rejoice. It is cause to rejoice if they repent. When you confront somebody of sin, you're basically going to get two responses. They're either going to be receptive or they're not. And some people, you know, you might have to work on a little bit. You go Matthew step one, Matthew 18 step one, they don't repent. You go with Two people, you go back, they repent. I've seen that happen a lot. You, you up the level of accountability, they are softened. They are convicted. You've won your brother. Sometimes you go step one, step two, step three. And then you've got to go step four. Okay, then they repent. There are occasions where you go step one all the way to four. They don't repent. And they're just as hard as a rock. And they resist. And they continue to isolate and abandon and uh, have sinful behavior. And you just put them in God's mercy and pray for them. And uh, then God has to deal with them. But basically, when you confront somebody who is in this position, they're either going to respond with resistance or they're going to respond with guilt in a positive way. Before we get to the good news of when they respond in a positive way, just be reminded that some won't respond. They'll harden themselves. They'll isolate themselves like my friend who's been hiding from me literally for 20 years. Can't find them. It's sad. And then I'm reminded of, uh, first. look at First John real quick. An important reality we need to keep in mind. Um, there are occasions where people come into our life who are professing believers or they come into our church who are professing believers and everything we know about them, we think, wow, I just can't see how they're not saved. But then they leave and you're like, wow, maybe they aren't Christians after all. First John chapter 2, verse 19 says this, and, and John is talking about people who wandered away from the truth, wandered away from the faith, left the fellowship, abandoned apostolic teaching and truth. Well, what happened to those people? Well, John tells us they went out from us. They left the body. They left the community of faith. Well, why did they leave? Well, they weren't really of us. That was the problem. They were not truly born again. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And this is talking about in the Christian community, the Bible-believing community. But they went out so that it would not... Uh, so They left us or they went out so that it would be shown by God that they all are not of us. So that's one of the ways that God exposes the heart of somebody when they just totally abandon Christian fellowship altogether. They want nothing to do with the church, Christianity, the Bible, the Gospel. And then they are exposed for what they really are, just like Judas, I said earlier. So you will have occasions where people are like that. But then there are the good occasions where somebody will be rescued. They'll respond to the truth. They'll be convicted. God will be gracious to them, soften their heart, and bring them back into the fold. And that is cause for rejoicing. So go back to James chapter 5 and the good news there of giving us hope, really. Because uh, God is in the business of rescuing sinners, right? And sometimes He uses us to do it. Jesus came to uh, seek and to save that which is lost. I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners... Sinners to repentance and salvation. Verse 20, let him know that he who turns or converts is one literal translation, a sinner 
from their error, their wandering, their straying of His way will save His soul. The word save sometimes is translated as rescue. Rescue His soul. Many times it's translated or in reference to salvation. So if it's a wandering professing believer and they're not saved and you give them the Gospel and you call them to God's will through Scripture and accountability, they might become regenerate in that process. I've actually seen that happen too. That would be the story, the testimony of Jim and Tammy Baker. Where Jim Baker supposedly was this televangelist and Bible teacher and prophet for 20 years and he was actually a scoundrel and stealing people's money and then he went to jail and then he got out of jail and now he says he was never a Christian. He was a phony and he got saved in prison, apparently is his story. So through that confrontation, uh, there's a person who maybe was regenerate after they got confronted who used to be a professing false phony believer. Uh, Or maybe this is a true believer and you bring them back to God through the truth of His Word and prayer and accountability and you're rescuing them could be from physical death and God's judgment that could come on their life which 1 John says could happen or 1 Corinthians 11 says that God was killing believers because of compromised hidden sin in their life. That happened in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, the big debate. Were they Christians? I think they were probably believers. It doesn't say they weren't believers. It said they were deceived by Satan. Whether they were a believer or not, uh, God put them to death for compromised sin in their life. And that's always a possibility. So you've got two things possible at stake in this kind of a person's life. Either eternal death and condemnation as they die and don't know Christ and then they're self-deceived. Or this is a true believer who is judged by God with physical death because of their sin that they didn't relent from. And there are, both options exist in the Bible. Either way, if we are successful by the grace of God in our ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about in Corinthians, and we are able to successfully rescue the sinner and bring them back into the fold, and they are repentant, like Paul talks about this sexually immoral man in 1 Corinthians, he repented. And they brought him back in 2 Corinthians, and Paul said, man, everybody reaffirm him with love. Reaffirm him. Restore him. Rejoice. Celebrate. Get the fatted calf. Let him know that the one who turns or converts a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. All of his sins will be forgiven. Isn't that amazing? A believer could get involved in the grossest kind of sin for an extended period of time and if they are truly repentant and they come back, all of their sin will be forgiven by God. That is the good news. That's the grace of God. That's what he's talking about. We're going to close uh, at some of the celebrating and good news and look at Luke 15. That's what the, the whole chapter of Luke 15 is all about. Straying, wandering sinners who are being rescued. Every one of these parables about the same thing. In Luke 15. So he gives three different analogies. Uh, Actually, one, two, yeah. Three different analogies. Somebody who was lost, somebody who wandered, somebody who strayed. He uses the same words, by the way. And then was converted or it was found or it was rescued. First example is sheep. One sheep who goes astray. There's a hundred sheep. One goes astray. Jesus, the shepherd, goes after that one, rescues it, brings it back to the 99. So that, that one straying 
uh, sheep was rescued. And look at uh, Luke 15, verse 5. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Get this, rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. He goes, talks to the other saints. Verse 6, rejoice with me, rejoice with me. I have, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 7, there is joy in heaven when any sinner repents and acknowledges their sin before God and pleads with God for forgiveness. There is rejoicing and joy even in heaven. You know who has the joy in heaven? It's not the angels as much as God Himself is rejoicing any time a sinner repents. Uh, the next one, a lost coin. lady loses a coin, she finds it. Verse 9, it says she rejoices when she finds it. Verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels. The angels aren't the ones with joy. It's There's joy in the presence of the angels, which is God Himself has great joy at the rescuing of a sinner, of a repentant sinner. Joy, joy, joy. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice with Me. And then He goes on to tell the prodigal sons and the evil son leaves and he lives a sinful life and then he's convicted and then he comes back and the father sees him and the father runs and embraces and rejoices at his repentant wayward son and the parable concludes in verse 32 but we had to celebrate and rejoice celebrate and rejoice anytime a sinner repents and comes back to Christ anytime we need to celebrate and rejoice and you know we can even apply that on a, a micro level Anytime there's repentance in this little circle of our own life, whether it's in our marriage or with our kids' parents, if your kids do something wrong and sinful, they are confronted, they are convicted, they truly repent, you as parents, you should celebrate. Amen. Thank God. Thank you, Jesus, for answering that prayer. Thank you so much for softening the heart of my child that they, they repented and want forgiveness and want to make this right. Time for a Twinkie. Let's celebrate. That's how I'm going to celebrate today in my house. So at any level, that is God's heart rejoicing at any time that a sinner repents and turns to God. And I just let's go ahead and pray and ask God to help us being those continuing on a rescue mission. Father, we do thank you that you are a loving, merciful, saving God. We also know you're a holy God. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but to seek and to save those who are lost, not to be served, but to serve Himself. And then He provided the way by His perfect life, His substitutionary death for absorbing Your wrath, Father, on the cross on behalf of sinners. Thank You, Jesus, for Your powerful resurrection, guaranteeing that the rescue mission would be a reality. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your ascension on high where You are enthroned even to this day as King of kings and Lord of lords and still forevermore the seeking Savior, thank You for every single one of us that You've already saved. Saved us out of the miry pit of sin, death, hell. Given us new life. God, help us uh, with Your help, Your truth, Your Spirit, Your leading to continually be ready and on call to rescue fellow sinners who have that need and that You would be gracious and merciful granting them repentance. We pray it all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.